Welcome to the Unplugged Podcast, where we believe that if you can breathe, you can meditate. All of the answers lie within you, and that you are one meditation away from feeling 10 times better. Today, you'll hear from the best meditation instructors in the world, whose only intention is to help you experience the life-changing benefits of meditation. So sit back, relax, and enjoy today's meditation. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Unplug podcast. I am so excited because one of my absolute favorite people of all time is on this podcast today. You are going to meet Sharon Salzberg, who has written so many incredible books, has inspired me to create Unplug, was definitely part of one of the reasons why I've done what I've done. And she has one of my favorite books on the market right now called Real Change. So she is going to be sharing with you some of her incredible wisdom from this book. And also, we're going to get to know her because how do you become the leading person in the mindfulness industry? I mean, a lot of people want to reach that but they can't get there. And that's not her intention anyway. Her intention really is to help people feel better the easy way. So welcome to the Unplugged Podcast. I'm so happy to have you. Hi, Sharon. Hi there. It's great to see you. Wow. Great to see you too. Um, I really just wanted to kind of introduce you to our readers and I mean, our listeners and tell them about how you became you. Well, that was very funny hearing you say that because, first of all, uh, most of it is just getting older. You know, like I'm, I'm old enough, as my friends say, my young friends say, you were meditating before it was cool. You know, <laughs> and the phrase mindfulness industry was unthinkable. I mean, nobody thought that way. You know, uh, mindfulness was such an arcane term that nobody used. So um, basically, <laughs> it's just getting older, I think. Uh, I did go to India a long time ago. I went in 1970 in order to learn how to meditate. And so, um, and I am, it is true, uh, one of the early people to bring these tools, Western people to bring these tools back to the States. And so, um, you know, uh, my colleagues, Joseph Goldstein, Jack Cornfield, and I were teaching uh by 1974, we were teaching uh, first in this country and then around the world. So lots, lots of years in between and lots of changes too. And you actually opened up a meditation center. What mm -hmm. year was that? What, what made you decide to just go for it? Because I, what was your aha moment? I guess I'm kind of looking for that. Well, it's so funny, you know, it's like a lot of times people say to us, oh, you must have had such vision, you must have had such courage. And I don't think so. I mean, it'd be interesting to talk to you about opening up Unplug, you know, and, and sort of what that was like. But um, we came back, Joseph and I had met in India and we each came back in 1974. Jack Cornfield was having a parallel life at the same time in Thailand. He also came back that year, um, and we met up in Boulder, Colorado. It was the first opening of the Naropa Institute. It was their first summer, and um, subsequent to that, the three of us, and plus some other friends, 
would respond to invitations to teach. And it was very haphazard. It's like we were all sleeping in people's living room couches. You know, we had nothing. And uh, we'd move in, basically, in between retreats. And at the end of a retreat, we never knew if there'd be another invitation. And then one would come along by letter, because that's how we communicated in those days. Like, I can get together some friends and a cook. Would you like to teach a retreat? And we'd say, okay, so some combination of, of this group would go. And uh, finally, the friend whose house we were crashing in maybe more than any, I think in, in self-defense said, you know, I have an extra uh, property, I have a rental property down in Felton near Santa Cruz, California. Why don't you go stay there? So we moved into this house and we opened it as a retreat center. It was very small, it was just a house, but there was maybe three extra bedrooms where people could come and do their own retreat and we would cook for them and stuff like that. And somebody came through and he said to us, you know, why don't you start a real retreat center? Uh, you know, it would be like a sacred site in this country. It would be a place where the kind of energy that gets engendered as people come together to practice, it doesn't have to disperse at the end of the, you know, the rental agreement. So, he said, I know all the people who can help you the most. They're all in Massachusetts. And he was right. So we came to the East Coast and and uh, formed a nonprofit and looked up and down the East Coast for a place and finally uh, found this place in Barry, Massachusetts, which was a novitiate at the time. And we bought, I think it was 80 acres, it was 80 acres of land and an institutional building that could sleep like a hundred people and had, you know, kitchen and the whole thing for $150,000, which we did not have. <laughs> so uh, we raised $50,000. The Fathers of the Blessed Sacrament who were running the novitiate gave us a $50,000 mortgage and we could not get a bank mortgage. And uh, three very brave people went to the bank as individuals and got their own loans to give to us. That was the last $50,000. And um, we moved in. And so, uh, you know, our mantra, honestly, for the first year was we can, only, we can always close in a year. We can always just close. If no one wants to learn how to meditate, we'll just close down. You know, it was no sense of like, oh, this is really the beginning of, you know, this immense movement. There was nothing like that. We made many mistakes, but it was just like one decision after another. And we didn't really have any models, which was interesting and maybe a parallel to some things you experience as well. Because, you know, almost every um, group, meditation group or place established in the West at that time was referring back to a singular Asian teacher or monastery. And we were the first Westerners to really kind of look at everything, like what should it look like here, you know? And uh, while we had uh, very close relationships with teachers in Asia, there were many teachers we had close relationships with. It wasn't just like one line coming through. And so we discussed everything. Everything was a matter of, you know, like, should we have Buddha images? Well, I don't know, you know, like, the point isn't to become a Buddhist in any way, you know, it's, it's, it's quite different than that. It's about harnessing the power of your own mind. But on the other hand, we didn't make this up either. You know, it wasn't just like a 
brunch we had one day and we thought, let's do this. How about if people did that or that, you know, that there really was a, a kind of um, steadiness to the teachings, you know, through the centuries and and a, a kind of ancient, timeless quality because of that. And, and uh, so finally we did have Buddha statues, but it was touch and go, you know, like. <laughs> for a long time and everything like that we just examined everything that's an amazing thing might might happen more over brunch wouldn't it be great <laughs> i love that yours was definitely much more thoughtful um can you tell me a little bit about what it is today you know and 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 the trajectory of of that because you started this small thing with what seems like a lot of money even now and it's this huge place i think you're there are you there right now i am i mean yeah i have a house next door so yeah is it still crowded are you still holding retreats there like what's it still what's it like and where like what was it like in the heyday what is it like now i'm kind of curious about that yeah well uh it definitely grew as meditation became more popular and um, I credit people like John Kabat-Zinn enormously for that. You know, John was actually, he was sitting there, it's right next door to me through the forest. Uh, he was sitting there one day when he had the thought, you know what, you can take this entire uh, body of information away from kind of Buddhist languaging, put it in terms of science, uh, call it stress reduction, maybe call it mindfulness-based stress reduction, and, you know, first you bring it to healthcare, then you bring it to schools. And uh, he said he got a 25-year plan that came up in his mind. He, he stood up, he wrote it down, and then he did it. You know, so, uh, I mean, we I've always believed that. My first teacher in India, his name was S.N. Goenka. And the first night of my first retreat, he said, the Buddha did not teach Buddhism. The Buddha taught a way of life. And one of my other early teachers, a man named Menindra, once said to me, the Buddha's enlightenment solved the Buddha's problem. Now you solve yours. You know, so that flavor had always permeated my understanding. This is not about a belief system. This is not about joining anything. This is not about a new identity. It's not about rejecting anything else. It's about harnessing the power of awareness and refining your own awareness. Um, toward insight, toward love, toward compassion, and so on. And so I was totally in sync with what John did, but John did it in a world like health, you know, that made it very impactful. And so uh, that was like a, a real expansion of understanding. And, um, and then we could see, like, you know, scientists were starting to come and sit, and artists were starting to come and sit, and um, religious figures in other traditions were coming to sit. There's a Trappist monastery very close to Barry, you know, and the monks started coming, you know, so it was just like, wow, rabbis. And like, you know, it was, it was uh, a real, I think, authentic expression of what we were always trying to convey. And, and it just grew. And then people started doing research and, and the science bolstered that. And for people who uh, were not otherwise interested or were very, very skeptical. And suddenly they were going, huh, 
maybe there's something there, you know? And so uh, the form, because of where we are, uh, is really intensive silent retreats. There's not silent in the sense that you always have teacher contact or you may have probably, you know, question and answer sessions in the hall, but you're not engaged in social uh, chatter, you know, so you're not eating over and eating and speaking at the same time. And it's a little bit weird for sure, but almost always people emerge, even if they came very frightened of that thought, saying it was one of the most beautiful things about being on retreat because it's like for once in your life, you don't have to present yourself to others. You know, it's interesting or provocative or anything. You could just be with yourself and your own experience. And even though people are silent, you, you grow very close. You feel one another, you know, in, in a very different level of sensitivity. And so that's basically the form. So uh, we did close down. We are closed right now with the pandemic. And uh, it closed a little bit early before the order came. Actually, it was just we could see, you know, it was not a good thing. Uh, to be open, and so, um, uh, but until then, you know, like every retreat was full and with long waiting lists, and so in a way, it's been really um, exciting in its own way to go online and try to present programs online. Some of them are intensive retreats, some of them are, are more like workshops or, or whatever, so, uh, because it's like I see in the chat, if I'm teaching for IMS online, people are signing in, you know, because we ask them, well, you just say where you're from, you know, and people are signing in from Dubai and Moscow and all over Europe and Australia. And I think, oh, what time is it? You know, you must be really sleepy. And people write and say, well, I couldn't make the last session because it was the middle of the night here, but I'll catch it on the recording. And, you know, so I feel like we're we're trying to meet the moment as best we can. And it's it's got good sides to it. And also people write and say, I haven't been able to come on retreat. I'm taking care of my mother who's ill or something like that. And here I am, you know, now I, I get to make contact anyway. Wow, that's amazing. I love that. You're now even more global than you probably were before, before mm -hmm. people were flying in from all over the world and coming there as like, a, you know, the yeah. mecca of mindfulness. And now they're just logging on to get silent, which kind of cracks me up in a way, but it is really needed. And, and I've, I've seen it before. I want to talk about your book um, and books. So why don't we work with, start from the last one that just came out, Real Change, and go backwards. And just tell me a little bit about what your intention is for this book and, and what your dream and vision is. And for the person who picks it up for the first time, like what's the wisdom that they walk away with? Mm -hmm. uh, this is a book I've wanted to write for years, you know, and that's uh, in some document or another. So people sometimes ask me why. Um, and I think for a number of reasons. I, in a way, I think it was uh, two different groups people were really inspiring me. One was, I certainly know a lot of meditators, you know, and I've seen over and over again how genuinely, just whatever method you're using, you know, whatever um, technique you may be using, just that process of greater introspection and coming closer to yourself leads to a very genuine compassion for others. 
you know, so it's not only more compassion for yourself, but it, it, it does evoke the sense of connection and care about others. And I've seen, you know, decades now of meditators who, who are transformed in that way, and they also don't know what to do with it. You know, any action we might take to try to help somebody either in a family, individually, in a community, or, you know, in the global sense, change the world, it can seem so small, so negligible, anything we might do, and so often we don't do anything. And I wanted to help people uh, be encouraged, you know, to do the good that's in front of them, even if it seems small, because it's not small. It's, it's really essential. And I say in the book that one of my icons forever has been the Statue of Liberty. And, uh, you know, I just love that sense of welcome. Like, you belong, you have a home here. Even you that no one else wants, you know, you can, you can make a home here. And what I didn't so much know or, or realize um, consciously uh, before I was working on this book is that she is actually mid-stride. She's like a woman on the move. She's taking a step. And, you know, usually we think of the poem or the torch or something like that, but she's actually, she's got one foot in movement. And, and yeah, so yeah. that one step, that sense of, oh yeah, agency, like I can, let me do this thing, even though it doesn't seem like it's going to ease the suffering of the world that much. That's part of what I wanted to encourage. And the other thing I saw was that I've been working, like everything we taught in the beginning and quite often now, is just open. It's like whoever shows up, shows up. But I've also, in the last several years, spent a lot of time working with what we call caregivers. I think there needs to be a better word, but I don't know what it is. Uh, either people who are at home taking care of, you know, parent or child or something like that, or professionally, they're really on the front lines of suffering in some way, uh, trying to ease the life of somebody else. Um, I was part of a four-year program through this place, the Garrison Institute, working with frontline domestic violence shelter workers, you know, people who work in the shelters, and then directors and supervisors, and then that program morphed to be working with international humanitarian aid workers, like people going to Syrian refugee camps. And um, and these days, a lot of medical personnel, either ambulance drivers, EMT workers, nurses, doctors, um, you know, people who are really uh, up against it, you know, in, in often very unfavorable, uncelebrated, situations, uh, unsupported, and doing the best they can. So they have enormous empathy and care for others, but they're burning out for other reasons. Uh, maybe not as much compassion for themselves as for others, or maybe uh, not having that infusion of what we might call equanimity or, or wisdom, just understanding limits, like, I can't do everything, you know, I can't fix it, I can't just go poof and all suffering is gone, and would that I could, but I can't. And, um, you know, there's, there's a different kind of balance that I've learned from them, from doing that work, that contemplative practice can also help provide. And, 
And then I started thinking, well, who who reminds me of these caregivers? And I thought, oh, activists. They're so similar in so many ways, you know, up against it, doing the best they can, really caring, caring sometimes for the people no one else seems to care for. And they're burning out. And so I wanted to see if it would be helpful, uh, which I suspected it would be, to help provide those tools. So I kind of brought those two groups together, and that's the book. What are your favorite tools from the book? Or what do you think would be like the most useful tool if we were going to take one, if you're going to give us one, um, that could really impact someone's life who's helping other people cope, especially mm -hmm. in this day and age? I'll give you two. Uh, one is breathing. Uh, because we actually, you know, part of the being overwhelmed by stress is we actually forget to breathe. And uh, when we use a breath meditation, it's not even so much uh, only about breathing, it's about rest. It's like putting the button on, just putting your attention on something like the feeling of the breath, which you don't have to improve or elaborate, just it's happening anyway, right? So there's a quality of rest um, that I think is very important because we're overwhelmed, you know? You don't even have to be an activist these days certainly to feel quite overwhelmed. And I feel like I've watched also the, even while everyone of course is an individual and, and is different, but I feel like I've watched the wave, you know, uh, also of um, going from like incredible anxiety and disruption and uncertainty to uh, grief and anger and then exhaustion. And I think people are just emerging out of like a very exhausted place in general. And uh, so we're facing all those same issues, you know? It's like, um, I should also say, I wrote the book, the entire book before the pandemic. Um, and uh, it has chapters in it, like moving from anger to courage or moving from grief to resilience. It's got a chapter in it, remembering to take in the joy because it's easy not to, you know, we feel so overwhelmed or so tired or we're guilty or whatever um, and so on. So then a friend of mine was reading the book to excerpt it and he was like tremendously anxious because of the pandemic, I mean, tremendously. and which he, he's very open about. And he said to me, he really liked the book, but he kept reading the examples and thinking, that's what made you anxious? Wait till you see what's coming down the bike, you know? So then I went to the publisher. The book was supposed to come out in June. It came out September 1st instead. And so that gave me a little more time. And I, I went to them and I said, would it be okay with you if I wrote a new preface that could kind of ground the book in this time so they said yes and um so the rest of the book the entire body of the book was written before the pandemic hit i think it turned it in december and and uh the preface was written after the beginning of the pandemic and my overriding question in writing that preface to myself was like what's still true what can i rely on what can i count on 
in this time of tremendous disruption, you know, what's still true? So then uh, I did have a certain amount of concern, you know, I'd wake up in the morning sometimes and think, did I write a totally irrelevant book, you know? <laughs> like The uh, best comment I've heard from anybody, the most reassuring was somebody said to me, are you psychic? <laughs> like, I thought, oh, thank goodness, you know? Uh, that's good. Like, So what was the tool besides breathing? Well, breathing. Oh, yes. Then I would say loving kindness for sure. Um, you know, there are ways of meditating uh, where rather than, say, resting our attention on the feeling of the breath, we rest our attention on the silent repetition of certain phrases like, may I be happy, may you be happy. Uh, the idea is gift giving or offering um, energetically. And... It functions as a way of paying attention differently. So that um, if thinking about ourselves, for example, we're more in the habit of only thinking about the mistakes we've made and what's not good enough, just by wishing ourselves well, we expand that vision of, of who we are. We're giving some airtime to what might not get much attention. And then there are many, many beings in our lives in general uh, usually people who play some function in our, our lives that we see again and again and we don't feel anything for. We're just kind of indifferent to. We hardly notice them. We objectify them. They are not they don't mean anything to us. And, and there are parts of that practice where we consciously call someone like that to mind. And I had another funny experience around the book where um, a journalist was interviewing me and the meditation they wanted to record was loving kindness for what we call a neutral person, just that kind of person. And probably for 45 years, my colleagues and I have been saying, like the checkout person in the supermarket, the kind of person we usually normally ignore. And I heard myself say that. And I went, whoops, you know, like, look at that. Like, how do we think we get to eat if we're not growing our own food? That we really do live in this interconnected universe where we're all tied together. So doing loving kindness practice really uh, reforges that knowledge of how connected we all are. And it, it's a very uplifting state. I think that's so fascinating. Whenever I do your loving kindness, and, and for those of you who are listening, when you think of loving kindness, you really think of Sharon Salzberg. They call her the loving kindness lady. But I always seem to have the same person come to mind. And that was the receptionist at my kids' elementary school. She helped everyone with everything, but nobody ever probably appreciated her mm -hmm. enough. But she always pops up for me as someone who I feel neutral about. But I, I because of actually your meditation, I no longer feel neutral about her. In fact, I have to change up my person now because yeah, right. I genuinely care about her yeah, yeah. because of this practice, which is, yeah, something I never really thought about. So um, I love your book, Real Change. I've read it two times. Um, I've had you on Unplug Live and you've been on the Unplug app. And now I'm trying to tell everybody, if you do not have this book, you need to buy it because it's one of those books that you sit down and you read and it's almost like you're giving yourself a little bit of a gift the gift of presence, the gift of self-care in a book, which is 
you put years into this book and we get to just grab it and get all the good stuff out of it. So I always look at books like oh, people put so much of their life into these pages and we just get to reap the benefits in a short amount of time. It's almost unfair, but <laughs> anyway, so get the book. You'll love it. And it's not her only book. How many books have you written now, Sharon? Uh, this is number 11. Can you remember all the titles right now? It's, it's like a quiz, a yeah. pursuit quiz. Uh, Loving Kindness was my first book. And then I what? wrote A Heart as Wide as the World. And then one counts as um, Voices of Insight, which is I edited. I didn't actually write. It was um, after Ramdas had a stroke. We, uh, as a collective, the teachers at the Insight Meditation Society, created a book with all the proceeds going to his care. So that's mm -hmm. Voices of Insight. So, uh, but that counts as one of my books. So, mm -hmm. uh, so uh, Loving Kindness, Heart as Wide as the World, Voices of Insight, Faith. And then I had a series of smaller books, The Force of Kindness, The Kindness Handbook. Let's see if I even remember. Uh, then I did Real Happiness. I did Real Happiness at Work. Uh, I did, I'm missing a book somewhere in there. <laughs> I did yeah. Real Love. And I did Real Change. I'm missing something. Yeah, you're missing a, a book. But we could get back to that. That's amazing. <laughs> you have so many books, you can't even remember them all. Remember. Not everybody can say that. Um, Sharon, I wanted to ask you an important question. And that is like, do you think meditation needs to be long in order to be effective? Uh, no. Like, people always ask me that question. How long should your practice be? Should... And I say it should be as long as you can possibly do it for and not quit. Yeah. But I wanted to ask you what your professional opinion was on that, because we hear so much of the scientific studies saying yeah. X amount of time. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm saying no, partly because of scientific studies, because, uh, you know, it, it's different now. People are also uh, like when I went to India, first of all, I had to go to India, you know, which was a schlep and a half. <laughs> I mean, I was 18 years old. I was a New Yorker. I'd gone to, I was in college in Buffalo, New York. I'd never even been to California when I went to India. Um, so the actual tools, if you were looking for not just a book to read, which was not that common either, but you really wanted some actual pragmatic tools. They were not easy to find. Mm -hmm. You know, so I got myself to India and then the form in which they were all presented was intensive retreats. And mm -hmm. so that's how people started. And so you'd sit 45 minutes or an hour, whatever was on the schedule, you know, that was like preordained. And, um, and then, you know, we weren't always on retreat or as time went on back in the States, people were more doing a workshop or doing a class, sitting at home, you know, it was a different form altogether uh they hadn't started out with these long sittings and retreats and and you can also say we can divide meditation into two categories one is a formal dedicated period where you're sitting or you're walking or you're lying down the posture doesn't really matter but your intention for that period is just to deepen awareness and compassion it's not to like also figure out your vacation plan you know like that may come up <laughs> 
<laughs> for sure it may come up, but that's not why that's not what you're sitting down about, you know. Right. So that's that's one aspect. The other aspect is what this venerable Tibetan Lama high up in the Himalayas once called short moments many times. That's like reaching for the glass mm -hmm. of water and then feeling the coldness and the hardness of the glass. Uh, maybe the most famous example is Thich Nhat Hanh saying, uh, Vietnamese Zen master saying, don't pick up the phone on the first ring. Let it ring three times and breathe. Then you pick it up. I once went into a finance firm in New York and gave that advice and I looked up and I saw the complete panic on everyone's faces and I said okay maybe for you just like twice you know just let it ring twice but uh, it's just some reminder that is the signal that's all we need just to pause and kind of come back to ourselves and maybe don't always multitask you know sometimes drink a cup of tea or coffee just drink the cup of tea or coffee not also be checking your email at the same time. And nothing that takes very long, nothing that's going to explode your to-do list, but it will really make a difference. So in terms of the first, that dedicated period, I really um, find that for me it has been really important, in part because that second short moments many times becomes like a story I'm telling myself. Mm -hmm. and not actually putting into practice. You know, like, who remembers when your phone rings that you're going to, you know, you're going to breathe. You're not going to pick it up right away. But if you've sat that morning, you'll more likely remember. Mm -hmm. You know, so uh, it has merit in and of itself, and it also is a great platform for the other. So, I mean, I've had teachers say many different things, sit an hour in the morning, sit an hour in the evening, sit 20 minutes in the morning, sit 20 minutes in the evening. Um a very highly respected neuroscientist a couple of years ago who you know works in studying meditation said to me a couple of years ago seven to nine minutes a day will actually change your brain who was that that was richie davidson okay uh university of wisconsin at madison so um wow you know and that means demonstrable changes that they can tell in your brain it doesn't even mean, you know, heartfelt changes like, oh, my relationship with my kids is better or something like that. Uh, Amazing. You know, so, um, and then I was recently, very recently on a Zoom panel uh, into Oxford University and another friend of mine who's a neuroscientist, her name is Amishi Ja. She has a, a lab at the University of uh, Miami. I was, I was saying that I was quoting Richie, and I could tell from her face she didn't look that happy. <laughs> so I said, okay, Amishi, what do you think? And she said, well, my lab found 12 minutes a day. You know, so clearly, as we agreed, nobody actually knows, you know. Uh, and there's not a certain number. But the point that is so striking is that nobody is saying you have to do this like eight hours a day or nothing's gonna happen. Mm -hmm. You know, you will find result, the everydayness of it actually seems more important than, uh, you know, the duration. But, and then, but I said to both Richie and, and uh, later to Mishi, you know, like, first of all, I don't know if it's that healthy to go for the bare minimum, you know? <laughs> and there's something very 
conventionally American about it. Like, what's the least amount of time I can put into this thing? Or so I'm asking stuff. that question. So, you know, no. So, uh, but I think it's very important if you can do 10 minutes, if you can do, hmm. if you can't do 10 minutes someday, do five minutes, you know, then another friend, uh, Barbara Fredrickson, who's not a neuroscientist, but a researcher, University of North Carolina, she did a study on just short moments many times. And she found that was making a difference for people, you know, so that was more like self-report and how they were describing their experience of, of their lives and, and so on. So, um, but I do feel just as a practitioner myself that it, it needs to be a reasonable period of time, you know, so it doesn't feel like so grim, <laughs> like another duty. And uh, something that I feel I can pretty well do each day, at least for a period of time. I think I, I heard you say the next title of your next book, book number 12, Everydayness. Ooh. I love that you just said it. And I was like, everydayness. Like, it's true. Like, we need to tap into our everydayness and carve out something beautiful short, long, whatever, or in these many moments, yeah. um, many moments. I just love that. I, I listen to you speak sometimes, Sharon, and I just want to savor it. <laughs> I love your voice. I love your words. I love everything you say. I love your books. Um, I've only read four of them. I didn't realize there were. <laughs> I well, have to go, what to was go. the book? I forgot. I forgot something. <laughs> So many to go. Oh, you're you're going to remember it when this is over. Um, well, I love I love what you just said too because of course I'm from New York City. I'm I grew up in the world of fashion that moves really fast. I, who knew? I have no idea still why I'm even doing what I'm doing now, other than I love it and it's helped me so much and I want to share it. Um, but of course, I'm trying to always hack it so we can hurry up and slow down you know, which is just my brain and the way that my brain works. And a lot of people don't believe me when I'm like, honestly, I, I've met so many people and it doesn't take that long to be effective. Yeah. And so it makes me sure. feel good to hear that Richie Davidson and you will agree that it can make an impact in a shorter amount of time. So my next question that I hear a lot about is, um, does it really matter what kind you do? Because you meet a lot of people and they're like, it's my way or the highway. You got to do mindfulness-based stress reduction, which I like that you said, we should call it mindfulness-based stress reduction. Just hearing that also makes me so happy. Um, but there's mindfulness, guided imagery, aromatherapy, crystal healing, zen, mantra, primordial sound, Vedic, transcendental meditation, it's a lot. And a lot of people are saying it's my way or the highway. What's your thought on that? Uh, I think there are two different questions in there. I think it's my way or the highway is a pretty dangerous statement. And my friend Bob Thurman, who's been a um, teacher of Buddhist studies at Columbia University, he just retired. Well, mm. He, he said once, uh, if somebody tells you, like a guru figure or a teacher tells you, I have the only way, he said, run. And then he, he amended it. And he said, grab your wallet and run. <laughs> so <laughs> it was like that. Uh, 
you know that that's a, a whole question all in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, in contrast to that, you know, I've seen I was actually in the room when the Dalai Lama interrupted somebody who was kind of going on in that way, like our way is the best, and it's you know, and, and the Dalai Lama interrupted him and said, uh, "The way that is the best is the one you'll do." Mm. you know so there's something about what attracts us what can we take to heart what inspires us what are we actually going to do because that's the point and that's the hard part I mean we make fun of you know I can make fun of 7 to 12 minutes a day but that's not that easy actually mm-hmm. you know and it's that first step of taking something we value in the abstract like oh that's a great idea stress reduction oh you know uh <laughs> I think I'll get my cousin some book on that, you know, like, <laughs> uh, you know, and to actually say, I am going to sit, I'm going to see what it's like for myself. It's not selfish. That's the most important movement of all from the sidelines right into the center of possibility. That's crucial. Mm-hmm. It's making it real, you know, it's breathing life into it and it's not easy to do. And so anything that helps us do that is really worth pursuing. Um, but I do think different practices probably do different things, you know, like even within my world, you know, mindfulness practices are designed particularly to do certain things. Loving kindness practices are designed to do some other things and they complement one another. You know, many people I know, including myself, have both, you know, that we do both, but, and I might do something else for fun, you know, or an adventure or something like that, but it, it doesn't necessarily confuse me anymore, you know, because yeah. I have a, a sense of where different practices might be leading. And so um, I don't think they're necessarily all the same, but it's up to you, you know, as a practitioner to decide where you're going to put your energy and your heart. And uh, it's not really up to somebody else's declaration you know right right I always say I I love being the client Um, when I think about unplug I never think of myself as the practitioner I'm the user and I'm a heavy user and I like exploring and the adventure and doing things for fun so yes mindfulness or intention setting or mantra I I'm it's like the food court which David G said, don't ever call it the food court again. He's like, this is not a Big Mac. Um, but I do feel like it's just, we've got this beautiful selection of so many different ways to access the stillness and silence within. And for me, like sound baths and meditation mixed with a little bit of shamanic journeying are a great way to do it. Um, so. Sharon, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you feel like you would like to share? Gosh, I don't know. It's just nice to see you. (laughs) Is Unplug open, physically open? Unplug is, well, only if you wanted to come by and say hi. I'm upstairs in the upstairs offices. It is we do privates there one-on-one. So if someone wants to book a private, we'll do that. But mostly we're doing live streaming from people's living rooms and we are doing, we're filming in there. We've now just did this um, 
fun program with this company called Beachbody On Demand. Have you ever heard of them? No. So Beachbody On Demand for me is a workout at home workout program for people who hate working out, um, which is me. And I started using it about, I don't know, five years ago, dabbling a little bit here and there. And I loved it. And so I called up the owner. I'm like, I love your program so much. You should do something with meditation. And he said, I'm not really feeling it. Then he called me out of the blue in May and he's like, let's do a program. And I said, great. So we created a 21 day on stress program. And now 2.2 million people are viewing like it's the craziest thing and they love it. And they have never meditated before. And these are real, like more worker outer type people. So that's been really fun to kind of uh-huh. work with uh-huh. them and, and broaden. So, but no, we're just kind of, we're doing lots of different fun things. And I have to say that my favorite thing right now is this, being able to sit with you mm-hmm. and learn about you and hear the backstory on, you know, real change and your books and your center and your life and because at the end of the day, that's the part that brings me joy is learning and meditating. You know, what book I forgot was faith. Did I say faith? My uh, favorite book and your favorite. I book. think you actually said faith. Oh, well, never that's mind. It's something else. Something we have to go to Amazon. I'm haunted. Well. I know. Like, I know. <laughs> <laughs> it was um, but I have to say, like, being able to hear from you all these little things, like, I'm going to now go immediately Google the Statue of Liberty to see the step because I never noticed that. But yeah. What's your plan? Are you like doing a lot of online programming too or? I'm, I have been doing a tremendous <laughs> amount of online programming because in part I've been doing a virtual book launch, which is, yep. you know, unusual. And I've also been doing things, making up for programming that was already set. Mm-hmm. If in different physical locations, and it's not going to happen in any of them, you know. So, uh, so the combination of those two things has kept me busy. I haven't really been able to think ahead that much, you know. The the times that I was already committed are fading, and the book, you know, is quieting down. So, uh, I, I was thinking, you know, like it would be fun to write again, not necessarily a book, unless I write, what was it? Everydayness. Everydayness. I want you to write everydayness because the truth is, is that's what we all need. We need to figure out a way to get out of blurs day. That's what I call every day. Now it's blurs day. I have no idea what day it is anymore. It's big blur, but having rituals that stick yeah. Enhance your day. I don't know why everybody isn't doing this. It makes it every day better. Oh, that's a good one too. Every, every day, day better. better. That is Do that. Good. Write that book, Sharon. I'm, I'll buy that. Every day better. Yes. That would be great. Not only like there's some companies that say a certain percentage happy. No, every day better. Yes. By Sharon Salzberg. Purchase. I like that. Yeah, uh, you get all fun. credit, all, all grateful <laughs> acknowledgement. Well, you know, in, in uh, my book, Real Happiness at Work, I have scattered throughout what I call stealth meditations, like those things we can do every day that no one has to know we're doing it. Mm-hmm. You know, when people were working in crowded offices, for example, you know, like, and they were getting anxious about something, you can't 
necessarily close your eyes and look weird, you know, or pull out equipment from a closet, but you can drink that cup of tea mindfully and mm. it's like your own little secret. <laughs> which is I, I love that. I, really I want to ask you a couple other questions about the people that you've met along the way mm-hmm. and who's really inspired you the most. Who are like, when you think of your teachers that you've met and that you've studied with, I would love to kind of just hear who they were and like the sound bites that resonated. Well, I've had many teachers, you know, in succession and uh, they've all been like crucially important for me. Um, Not all of them were, some of them had like incredible sound bites, you know, like uh, that was just their particular gift. You know, they could say something in like a sentence and you go, wait a minute, that's a whole other way of looking at life, you know? Who was Uh, that? Well, that was like uh, this one teacher, Menindra, for example, who's the one who said the Buddha's enlightenment solved the Buddha's problem, now you solve yours. (laughs) You know, he had a lot of lines like that. How do you spell Menindra? M-U-N-I-N-D-R-A. Okay. Menindra. Um, But probably the most profound influence on me was this woman named Deepama, which is a nickname for Deepa's mother, um, Deepa Ma, who is the person who told me to teach. And uh, I was incredulous. You know, I had gone to see her in Calcutta in 1974. I was coming back to the States for what I was sure was going to be a very brief visit before I spent the rest of my life in India. And uh, she said, when you go back, you'll be teaching. And I said, no, I won't. And she said, yes, you will. And I said, no, I won't. <laughs> she said, yes, you will. I said, no, I won't. I mean, it was ridiculous. I couldn't even imagine, you know? Like, And she said two things that were vitally important. One was she said, you really understand suffering. That's why you should teach. And it's true. I'd had a very traumatic childhood, like many people do, and I'd never really thought of it as fuel for being able to help others in some way. And then she said to me, you can do anything you want to do. It's only your thinking that you can't that's going to stop you. Mm-hmm. And I left her, we would call it a tenement room, you know, walked down four flights of stairs thinking, no, I won't. I'm not going to do that. You know? And then came back to the States and lo and behold, you know, these invitations did start coming and I thought, oh, I'll just stay a little while longer. And then and uh, at some point, we decided to start the center, the retreat center, and I woke up and I thought, oh, she was right. Look at that. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever met Wayne Dyer? No, I never met him, but I feel incredible gratitude for him uh, over ways he helped Ramdas that were really very important. And mm-hmm. um, what was your favorite Ramdas quote? Oh, that's that's hard too. Um, I, I, what comes to mind is actually a more recent one from him. I mean, you know, uh, a couple of years before he died so recently. But, um, you know, he'd had a massive stroke. And actually, the Wayne Dyer quote fits into that, too. Um, he'd had a massive stroke, and uh, he was always the kind of person who was helping others and, and resisted being helped mm-hmm. himself. And what Wayne did for him was, you know, uh, 
the 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 stroke was really massive and and no one thought he'd live and then he lived and then he was in a wheelchair and he was doing speech rehab and all this stuff and and uh you know his finances were not in great shape and we all wanted to start raising money for him and he kept saying no 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 and wayne went ahead and didn't anyway <laughs> he didn't uh -huh. care <laughs> which really saved the day uh -huh. uh, but anyway so ramnas um you know he he uh had aphasia and he yet was teaching and you know uh, he, they would hold these courses especially on Maui which is where he moved and, and he never left after that until right toward the end of his life but um, he was speaking one day and he said you know I was always the kind of person that couldn't receive but I could give and it was very difficult for me to receive and having known him since 1971 I'd agree with that statement <laughs> And, and he said, and then I had the stroke. And he said, the hardest thing of all was learning how to receive and let people help me. He said, harder than the pain, harder than the disability, you know, harder than the problem with speech. And he said, that was the hardest thing of all. It was the hardest thing and the most liberating to let wow. people help me. And then this is the line. He said, one of my fav famous books is called How Can I Help? Now I feel like writing a book called How Can You Help Me? <laughs> so, for some reason, that's what came to mind. Maybe because you said Wayne Tucker. That would be a good podcast. How Can You Help Me? I love that. Um, Sharon, thank you so much for spending so much time with me, for sharing so much with the Unplug audience. And for those of you who are listening to this, again, her book, Real Change, is out. Please get a copy of it. You will not regret it. Only if you need space, happiness, and a dose of self-care. I highly recommend that book. Um, Sharon, have a beautiful day. And hopefully one day I'll get to come visit your space in Massachusetts. I would love, I've never done, I've done a one silent retreat and that was enough for me. <laughs> hopefully i'll build myself up to that no we're so nice you, you'd really like it okay all right well thank you so much and i'm gonna say goodbye thanks for listening to the unplug podcast with meditations from the unplug app we hope you have a calm present and happy day